Welcome to episode 270 of the Win and Six podcast. I'm your host, Adam McGee. Joining me as always, it's Jordan Tresky. Hello, Jordan. Hello. It's over. The wait is over. 18 years. It struck me there when I introduced this as episode 270. I mean, that's a lot of episodes. We're doing this four years i think which in the grander scheme of this isn't all that long but still we have been waiting all of our time doing this to get to this particular point and now we're here how does it feel you know what it feels good (laughs) (laughs) is it a little bit of an anticlimax as in just the winning a series I think this says a lot about the books. It says a lot about why the books can like go all the way this year. But it is also a very weird thing. I think I wrote about this in the preview for Game 4. If they had have got through either of their last two series, which in both they had a chance at one point of doing that, I feel like there would have been real celebrations and real celebrations from the players, and that would have been understandable. But even, I mean, the books posted on their on their social media a video of inside the locker room after last night's game and i mean it could have been like a regular season loss on a tuesday the atmosphere in there it was just very much who cares which i guess is part of what happens when you sweep a series and it's as much of a formality as it was for the most part but there is a kind of weird there's a weird thing about they've done this thing that everyone's been waiting for so long and it's kind of been an aspiration. But they they don't have the kind of let's stop and savor that. Normally in the team's development, the first series win is such a major thing in its own right and that will be it. The books kind of played well enough a couple of times where I guess they got the bulk of that feeling without actually getting across the line. And now that it's arrived, it's kind of like, well, it's, yeah, it's great, but let's keep on moving because this team could win two or three more series. It's kind of weird that way. It's not the usual route we see to contention for NBA teams. Mm, I don't know about that. I mean, it's... I mean, <sighs> look, it's very possible the books go to the finals this year. Yes. There are not many NBA teams who go 18 years without winning a series and then go to the finals the first year where they do win a series. Like, this is about as non-conventional as a route to contention gets, is it not? 
when you put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's something though. Like you're right about it being for the players themselves, and you have to remember that's still like what Giannis, Chris Bledsoe, DJ, uh, Sterling. I'm probably missing other people. But, like, even th- that group that lost to the Celtics last year, like, that's not that many. A lot of the, just, a lot of the, the new, the new, uh, or new, but the, the players that they added on, like, they don't have that attachment to losing last year or even going six against the Raptors the year before. It's not like, a, they're not a group of players, though, with tremendous success. To draw on either, they mightn't have the books hang ups, but um, for all Ursan's trips around the place, before last year, had he won a series? Hawks, no, no, no. When he was, he wasn't with the Thunder for a playoffs, was he? And no, he was, he was he only was there like three games, and they got traded with the Thunder. Yeah, I don't think it was three games. But anyway, that wasn't that was the first iteration post. Um... Wow, you're exactly right. It was three um, games. Yeah, because it was weird. <laughs> it was weird that he was getting traded after three games. That is strange. Okay, um, well, you win this time, Tresky. But outside of that, I mean, you've got okay, George Hill. George Hill. Even his playoff experiences have been weird, though. Um, Why? Because of that photo shoot? Not really. Although that's just a generally weird experience. The drop in the bucket. Um, Powell is the only guy who like this is no big deal for. You know, and he's not playing. Miritich. Pat, Pat Connaughton. Miritich. I mean, Miritich. Uh... Last year with the Pelicans. Yeah, okay. And with the Bulls, he would have. And that was a sweep, too. That was a sweep, too. I guess a much more superior opponent than the Pistons. <laughs> yes, the Trailblazers were definitely a lot better. I mean, we could make a case for Miritich being some sort of lucky charm in this front, but I've got a different case to make, Jordan. There's one common thread that we can identify oh. between 2001 and 2019. And if the books wanted to, you know, Sample some playoff success. All they had to do was get a certain man involved in that long period of time, and they didn't. Do you know who I'm talking about here? Harvin Dam. A certain Harvin Dam, yeah. Darvin <laughs> um, <laughs> Ham is clearly the secret here. You know, he is the formula. We should probably be more concerned with you know the rumblings of teams paying attention, as they really should do, to the books because. Take Darvin Ham out of the equation, and this playoff drought is a whole lot longer. But bring Darvin Ham into the books, and not everything as well. I mean, Should... they tried it. Scott Williams was an assistant coach, I believe, the Larry Drew year, and he was let go after that. I did not know that. Yeah, he was there. I think there was another. There was another player from that era that I think was an assistant coach. I could be wrong. Anyway, but yeah. Darvin Ham is a secret. Ham Slamwich. Should we talk a little about the series with the Pistons? 
Sure. I, I mean, <laughs> I feel less like that now. Uh, I should apologize yeah. because people were probably waiting for a game three breakdown pod, and then we just decided not to do that. No. Assume that it was going to finish in a sweep and come back today where we could recap the series and talk a little bit about those two games combined, I guess. Um, outside of the first half and a bit of game four, where the Pistons played out of their minds, I think literally as well as they could possibly play. I mean, sure, Blake Griffin healthier could maybe have done a bit more, but I don't know if you could get all of your pieces firing that way. I guess Andre Drummond wasn't all that good, but I don't think it's possible for him to be all that good against the Bucks. <laughs> but that was about as good as they could play. And the Bucks just kind of stuck with them and stuck with them, and it was never a big deal. And although it was going on quite a while, and I was starting to think, oh, please don't give us a fifth game of this. Um, the Bucks weren't interested in having it. And when you look back on game four, and if you kind of go player by player and you go through the roster, um, you've got almost universally great performances. Like, really, really good performances. The box score doesn't necessarily show it in all of those ways because so much of what they did revolved around Giannis and revolved around him getting to the line. So, for example, let's take assists. Assists are obviously much lower than they could have been if Giannis hadn't taken 20 free throws. But to me, it was actually one of the bigger statements I think they've made in quite a few months, the way that second half played out and the way they just basically crushed the Pistons into the floor, just like stomped on them. I was so, so impressed. And this seems to be something that everyone is saying about their team. I did a lot of this from even writers generally about the Celtics. And look, we'll talk oh, about that in the coming days. <laughs> yeah, well, most of them do support the Celtics. That is true. Um, but I don't quite see how that's the thing. I saw, well, even Gordon Hayward, like I saw there was like something like, there was, I can't remember where it was, but it was like something like headline of like, he's, Gordon Hayward scores 20 points and says, like, now we're we're on the beginning of something. It's like, th- we've heard this, like, every, it happens every three weeks. They have, like, the big cross-country flight. Um, well, I'll say that. <laughs> it's your favorite. I mean, you love to reference the cross-country flight. Because but... everyone was talking about it. Like, there's this fame thing. Like, I, don't, was... I don't understand what everyone is seeing, though, as recently, like, this has just clicked. Like, they... They had one of those competitive sweeps that we've talked about before, like the the Pistons fell foul of to the Cavaliers a few years ago. Like they mm. they swept the Pacers, but not all that impressively. And we did talk before that series. I mean, I, I oversold that. I said it would be a six game series. You even oversold that a five, which I thought was a stretch at the time. But the conclusion both of us came to just before the playoffs started, when we were looking around the East, is. It just wasn't a series that would have been even two or three weeks earlier because the Pacers had clearly ran out of steam and there just wasn't a whole lot else there. But when you watch game four and that second half from the books, I was just kind of like, I, I really don't think the Celtics know what they're, what they're in for here. I really don't know if most teams in the Eastern Conference have any grasp of just how well and how many players are playing well. 
And I mean, Yana scoring 41 is kind of obviously at the forefront of that, but you can almost just look past them, and it's the other guys that really should terrify opposing teams in the East. Um, it's Miritich being 6 of 10 from deep his last two games. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure he's 6 of 10. Um, it's George Hill playing out of his mind. Absolutely out of his mind for the last two months and putting up absurd numbers in the playoffs. You may have these in front of you, you may have seen it already, but I just want you to guess if you can. George Hill's defensive rating. So in total, he played 92 minutes against the Pistons. So very much a meaningful sample, as meaningful as you can get in four games. What do you think his defensive rating was in the series? 90. No. That might be higher. I'm going to go like nine. I think it's like 93 something. You are. You're on the high side here. It's lower. What? Wow. <laughs> it's, it's quite a lot lower. Um, I mean, because they just struggled to score. Well, like they 70 did. Range? In the what range? 70? It's not that, it's not that low. I mean, 80? It's 84.7. Jesus. Play the hits of 80s, 90s. <laughs> <laughs> On top of that, the books also had a 118.4 off of its rating on the floor, yeah. which is which is a net rating of 33.7, second only to any ideas? Hmm. I don't know. Brooke. Brooke's net rating. Oh, yeah. His, in his, just his... under 120 minutes against the Pistons, so a lot of minutes. 38.7. His like raw plus minus is, was heading into game four was ridiculous. It was like plus eighty nine in ninety one minutes, and I'm assuming it's even greater at that point. His plus minus per game is twenty four point five in the playoffs, so that would make ninety eight. Yeah, plus ninety eight. <laughs> um, so almost a plus one hundred uh... for Brook Lopez, and he is another guy. I, I saw some tweets last night, kind of talking about the idea of you know do the Celtics put Horford on Brook Lopez to try and nullify some of that threat and I just thought that was such a cute idea basically because if you don't have Horford on Giannis the series is over and yet I don't know what they can do like the the idea de jure is that uh Start Gordon Hayward. <laughs> this is this is the lineup that the I never talk about Pistons. <laughs> I know. I was gonna make that joke myself. Just before we started, I said, Jordan, let's save Celtics. Yep. Uh but this is basically kind of talk about not really. But anyway, um I tell you, sorry. You make a point. The idea of the Celtics going with what has been their starting lineup of late, but swapping out Aaron Baines for Gordon Hayward and that causing the book some problems. I think that causes the Celtics more problems than it causes the Bucks. And I think the Celtics might have to do it anyway to score because Brooke is just on another level defensively right now. It is insane. Like, I think as a team, the Bucks are so locked in defensively that I really don't know if anyone is going to be able to score against them in the kind of volume they need to right now. 
Like I, the Celtics aren't aren't known aren't, for being. They're not a, a good offensive team. They're they, they have don't good go spells. attack the rim. No, as much as you'd think. Didn't the Bucks outscore them by like fifty points in the paint in the the one game the Bucks actually lost? Lost. I, I feel like it was like a fifty point differential in the paint. So they're gonna have to rely on ridiculous jump shooting. And they'll probably get at least one of those nights. If they're very lucky, they might get two. But I don't see otherwise how they're going to deal with the Bucks. And with Lopez in particular, and I think, look, we saw how he dominated Drummond and those just absurd numbers for the series for him. The Celtics, if they put Baines on him, Baines is not going to be comfortable where Lopez is going to take him. If they put Horford on him, Giannis is going to run riot. If they think that they could maybe put Gordon Hayward or Jalen Brown or... Put someone small on him, like the Pistons did. Bud will post Brook Lopez up 15 times the game. Damn straight. <laughs> Brook, Brook Lopez will average 32 points per game and the books will win in four. And I genuinely mean that, and it's something that they added to their arsenal as the season went on. They showed an increased willingness to do that. If teams approach is, oh, okay, we're going to go small because someone will go out there and guard you behind the three-point line. Brook uh, Lopez will go, oh, great. You know that thing that I was a lead at for like 12 years? I'll just go back to doing that. And if that's the case then, and you end up having to send a big man to help, you get open dunks for Yanis on cuts, you get open shots for guys on the perimeter. Um, I don't know exactly what they do. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the mailbag um, as I try to bring this back some Pistons talk because there is questions about the Celtics and their lineups. But I think they've got to go with that starting lineup that has a net rating in the playoffs of like minus 3.5, the one they've gone with, because I think they need the size of both Baines and Horford. And I don't think that's setting them up to win anyway. I really, I'm not entirely sure what they're going to do. Um, I, I Actually, that's the wrong way of putting it. I have a pretty good idea, I think, the, the options they might go to, but I'm not sure what they're going to get out of those options. We're going to see I'm not the sure return of semi-ojale. I, I would think there's a real chance that they do that. Yeah. And at that point, it's just like... You know, they're waving the white flag here. It's if this is what you're breaking out. Um, I got sidetracked in that because I was talking about the performances across the roster from various books throughout the series. And um, the one that I think is most deserving of mention, maybe from that group, and the kind of player who could just be a game changer against the Celtics without them even paying him any attention or noticing is Sterling Brown. Any guesses as to Sterling Brown shooting splits in the series? His free throws were, were not I good. So, okay. Sorry. But that's okay. You're allowed to see things, Jordan. 57.9% from the field, 55.6% from deep. So in his 25.6 minutes per game, that's 8.3 points, 5.8 rebounds, 3.8 assists, 1.3 steals. Um, he closed out the series with 9 points, 13 rebounds, and 6 assists as the Bucks' leader in rebounds and assists. And I'm, I'm going to fight the urge to go back to something Celtics-related there. I'm going to fight it really hard, Jordan. <laughs> but what was striking to me 
in the Pistons series was when you look at the Pistons and you look at even you look at what Blake's doing. Okay. And if you were to think about the Pistons and like, where do they go from here? What can they actually do to build a better team to build a, I guess to build a Pacers esque team, right? That's, I guess their best hope right now is to get something where you go, okay, they've got one really, really good player. If you can get the right pieces around, they get them to buy into a certain approach you could be this kind of difficult team for other teams near the top of the conference to play against. You're not going to be one of the best teams, but maybe you'll be just good enough that if you get a few breaks, you could cause some real problems. And you look at that and you look at, you know, it makes it nice and easy when there is a player called Brown on the other side in the matchup. So you had Brown versus Brown action. Um, Bruce Brown picked up like five fouls in no time at all, had no real impact on the series, started the series in the starting lineup was brought out for Canard's offense, ends it back in the starting lineup. <laughs> and it was it's designed for defense. A big and adjustment. He, <laughs> and he just couldn't do anything in any way. And when you look at a team like the Pistons, you see a roster that they're very much marred in the middle, but what really kind of consolidates them in that spot and gives them no room for upwards growth is they just don't have good young rotation players yep and what's striking about the books is the books have really really good young rotation players um sterling is now probably the leading example of that i mean in trudy probably has been throughout the season although dj fever certainly caught everyone Gave gave him a run for his money dj did just maybe a little just a little Maybe it was more fever I don't, than I don't think so. For me, I don't think so. And the reason why is is positional and it's need yeah. based for the books. Like Sterling does project to be someone who could be incredibly important in the books longer term future. Maybe not even that long term. I mean, look, he started the entire series. We don't know how quickly they'll rush Brogdon back or if they'll even need to. Um and then we don't know what free agency will have in store and if he may be needed to take on a bigger role in place of Brogdon or in place of Middleton or whatever it might be next season. We just, we don't know right now. But there's going to be a lot of talk again about, I'm doing it, I'm doing it again. It's going to be talk about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and maybe even Semi Ojale. Um, no. That's watch, a bridge watch, too watch far. Watch it happen, watch it happen. Um, I think that Sterling Brown is going to be really overlooked. And I think there's a real path to him being someone who can do a lot of damage to the Celtics. But more on that later. Getting back to the Pistons. <laughs> this whole episode is just going to be a struggle to... I mean, not that every episode of the series hasn't been this struggle, because our listeners have very much wanted us to talk about the Celtics since game one. But <clears throat> out of what you saw in game four, or out of what you saw across the series from players like that, we'll talk specifically about Giannis, because I think through game three and four, there are some interesting things to talk about with him. But this kind of, not even the second tier, but the rest of the books cast, right? The rest of the key players in and around the rotation are guys who could become key players in the rotation. I haven't even managed mentioned uh, Planet Pat in this series as someone else who had a really good series. What has impressed you the most among that group and of what they're doing? Mm. What do you think could be most important going forward against Boston? 
what stood out to me is just we what we saw in the Piston series we've seen throughout the whole entire season is that you kind of have questions about like someone stepping up or how will this translate to the playoffs and all that stuff in terms of role players like you know Sterling play in the starting lineup how will that continue can he continue playing the way he was to end the year can Connaughton still do what he's done like you know and obviously was boosted by his late uh, season shooting spark but I just think it's I, I think it's I don't think there's a there wasn't like a revelation in terms of to me at least in terms of like players like oh like this guy comes out of nowhere it's like we've seen these in flashes and obviously there's been for like Sterling and Planet Patton this could go obviously down the line there's been like hiccups here and there but like these guys are playing their best basketball of the season at a very critical time. That's huge in terms of where this can go against Celtics, where it can go after that if they win, where it can, they can go after that if they win and go to the finals. So I think to me it's just it's just kind of confirmed just how deep this team is. And, yes, the, the Pistons, even with Blake, I mean, that's, a, that's the one thing that I kind of want to – shine a light on i'm gonna <laughs> go off of my original tangent but like him playing on one leg and playing really well especially game four i mean some of the shots that he was hitting i i was the back-to-back trees was very impressive because that's yeah not him that... even like on two legs that's not him yeah i mean it just it it was good to see the bucks take care of business in four games but see him play like that even hobbled and less than 100%, probably less than like 75%, because there was some, sometimes I'm just looking at him just like, oh man, like it, ugh. it was kind of, I was like bracing myself if something like really bad happened, like with the Ursan kind of tangle up after his big dunk. But um, yeah, going back to my original point, I just think it's confirmed what we saw from that tier of players on this Bucks roster is that this, this team is very deep. And has contributors all along the roster. Do you think at this point, and I mean, I think this is interesting again, looking to what's ahead. I've just given up now. It's going to happen. We're going to talk about both series. Um, <laughs> there has been so much talk from the start of the year and what was anticipated. And going back a couple of years with the Celtics of their depth. Do you even have the edge there anymore? No. It's not even the Celtics. I think, I mean, it's certainly not the case against Sixers. Or or it certainly is the case against Sixers, I mean. And Toronto, I mean. Oh, the Bucks have the Raptors for depth. Come on. We did this as a mailbag question. I think the Celtics are the only team with any claim to matching depth. Um, Or having just that many somewhat capable players. That many guys who could factor into it. But... Yeah, even at that, I don't know. I mean, I'm even I'm looking here. I basically who played in their first round series outside of kind of key starters and guys you expect. So if you go into, we'll say outside of their top six, which is maybe arbitrary, including Baines and that, but him starting and Hayward as a six man, you get Marcus Morris, who capable player who had moments last year against the Bucks. I really feel like he's just going to get absolutely cooked this year, though. 
Um, Terry Rozier, who has had a very different season, and I'm going to be prepared to bet we'll have a very different series against the Bucks. They're the only two guys outside of kind of the Celtics top six who played more than double digit minutes in the first round. Behind that, you get Daniel Tice, who averaged seven minutes, and he may have to play more in this series. And then you're down to guys who just probably aren't going to play with the exception of the maybe bringing Semi Ojale back from the dead. Like the other guys who logged any minutes are Brad Bonamaker, Kirsten Jabasele, Robert Williams, Semi Ojale. The books don't have any of that. Like that's, they don't have four guys at the end of their roster where you're like, well, they're not going to play. I mean, Tim Frazier might be the only guy where it feels like it's just Pow's injured, obviously, and he'd fit into that as well. But if Pow is your, you know, oh, well, he's not going to play. You know, and he's a future Hall of Famer, uh, multiple NBA championships. If that's your guy doing that, I think that's better than it being Robert Williams. If you know what I'm saying, they just they can't quite outmatch the books in terms of depth anymore. Like they probably did last year, in spite of their injuries. I mean, that was part of the thing. They the books had more talent last year, but the books had to play Shabazz Muhammad as like a seven to eight man. And Joe Prunty actually didn't go deep in that series last year. And Shabazz was playing, Jet was playing at times. Like, they're, the difference. Like, how many minutes in game seven? There's a lot. High 30s, I think. Like, it was yeah. it was something crazy like that. Um, the difference in the books this year to last year is, okay, it's the addition of Lopez and Hill and Miritich. But it's also the dramatic improvements of Sterling Brown and DJ Wilson. And just in terms of bodies, in terms of the different combinations that are there for the books, they have so much they can do. I, part of the challenge, again, is going to be where they cut back, particularly if Brogdon is good to go in this series and how soon he is. i got a little bit of a feeling that could be sooner than we think. Um, I mean... Three, they said three to five days. We'll know a lot in the next three to five days. To me, that Which is the start of the series. Arguably. To me, he could be he could be available game for game one. I mean, we've seen him already. The only thing from Matt Velasquez's piece that he hasn't done yet is scrimmage and prat like team live practice. So that wouldn't it, surprise me. It also. From anything that I read about at the time and from any discussion of it, it seems to be an injury that the injury actually occurring is a source of release. It's a source of relief. And it can kind of take away a lot of underlying pain and difficulties that were there beforehand. And it's once it kind of heals, and it's then a matter very quickly of, okay, have you maintained general fitness, getting up to game speed, things like this? So it it does seem like it's something that once they get to a certain point, it wouldn't take very long to say, okay, you know, he's not quite there yet to, okay, he's actually ready now. And I just have a feeling that he's going to, I'm not saying he's going to start in game one. I think there's this very good chance, particularly the way things are going, that he will come back into things off the bench to begin with. But even if that's the case, like, can you look at how well Hill and Miritich and even Ursan had his ups and downs offensively, but he's a monster on the glass against yeah. the Pistons all series long. Um, 
Connaughton as well. Like, they just have so much they can do. And they'll get to a point where they could have kind of quick hooks for guys who don't quite have it and just be like, okay, it's not your night. Let's try this player instead. It's, I don't know if they could be in any better spot going into the second round. And it really feels like that because if Brogdon is back and ready early on, they're going to have a clean bill of health with the exception of Pau. And I mean, as clean as you get at this point in the season, I've no doubt that many players are carrying injuries, dealing with injuries. Mm-hmm. But as clean as you can get at this time of the season, they'll be coming in as the one seed with 60 wins and they've just added four more to that in the first round. And they've equaled the all-time uh, margin of victory for a playoff series with the Lakers in 86, although that was a three-game series. So worth noting if you see that one floating around. Yeah, they have technically noted that, but it's a pretty dubious stat to kind of circulate. Um, regardless, they were third all-time after game three. So that's the kind of series they had. And we could say what we want with the Pistons, and the Pistons are the Pistons. You can only beat what's put in front of you, Jordan. <laughs> and they did it in about as convincing and an efficient a manner as they possibly could. Which the Celtics couldn't have been more convincing in terms of scoreline. But they had to really dig out a couple of those games. Their offense generally stuttered. Mm. To me, there's a lot of questions. And if I was a Celtics fan, I'd have a lot of concern about the starting lineup having a negative net rating and just that not quite clicking because that seems to be their answer going forward. Um, To talk about just how, I guess the key players closed out games three and four. Um, We'll start with Giannis. If we had done a game, a post game three pod, I, I think I would have shared quite a bit of concern about Giannis and based on the things he was saying himself, because if we, cast our minds back because we have to do that now after he has 41 points and absolutely dominates in game four he finished game two where it was put to him after the game that he looked a bit frustrated late on what was the cause of that and he said no it was my body that was causing me frustration i was winded i didn't quite feel didn't quite feel right i was frustrated about my body post game three he was asked about injuries and in a very well smirking and kind of batting it away, he just said, no, no problems. And then kind of admitted, look, I've got pain. I'm just trying to ignore the pain. We don't have time for that at this point in the season. And in game three, look, he had 14 points. Was it 10 rebounds? Um, just didn't look right. I think he may have hurt his hand early in the game in game three. We could probably safely assume his knees don't feel in exactly peak shape right now, um, considering his history of problems in that department. So, look, cumulatively, there's quite a lot of things there. And just the vibes to me weren't stellar. And then he goes out and does what he does in game four. And I don't even really know what to make of that. Like, it, um, on the one hand, it just says so much of Giannis and says so much of what he could do in the weeks ahead that, yeah, this means a lot to him. <laughs> it really, he really cares about this, and he may just single-handedly go and do this thing if he has to, regardless of what he's going through. 
Should there be any kind of concern about that? For me, look, Game 4 washed a lot of that away. But I feel more than more than most books, there aren't really... I, I feel Bledsoe looks in about the best shape he's been with the books. He he's looks, looks a lot more bouncier than he kind of looked late in the season. Because there was a couple, there was like a couple games stretched there. I was like, he's not kind of like getting the same lift towards the basket that he usually does. Well, to me, he looks great now. Yeah, he looks um, really good. Middleton is moving in a kind of smooth, glidey kind of fashion that... How he usually does. I don't even want to put it like that because I feel like it's better than that. I think it's when... When he's at his very best, he has this way of moving around the court and his shots tend to, I mean, not even graze the rim going in. They have this ultra crisp look and feel to them. And I feel like he is right there right now. And an interesting, I guess, sub note going forward is everyone praised Middleton for the series he had last year, but I think kind of viewed it as, you know, he had this series of his life. He had a freak one-off thing. Now the books are going to play the Celtics again. I think some thought has to be given to what if that was what he can do with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown defending him? Like, what if the matchup actually played a part in that? And particularly maybe how the how the Celtics got caught up in dealing with Giannis and dealing with some of the other elements of the book's play that it kind of set him free in that way because even in a similar approach this year if things played out similarly I mean the books just have more help all around if Middleton had 70% of the series he had against the Celtics last year I mean the books are going to cruise through to the second round or through to the conference finals overall I, I feel very good about where the books seem to be at physically yeah, and this is the one exception where there's some ups and downs. At this point, is your belief in Giannis and what he can just will into existence so supreme that it's just kind of like, yeah, it's not a big deal. He's going to do what he has to do. Or is there just enough there where you're kind of like, yeah, this does require some attention and it does require some thought. Particularly because, look, he's realistically not going to get away with... Um, Averaging 28.3 minutes per game in the conference semifinals. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be <laughs> I'd be surprised if that is replicated. But surprised I mean, but not shocked? I think that would be my way of... No, I'd be surprised. Yeah, shocked. not shocked. Surprised, though. I'd be shocked. You would be shocked. 28.3 minutes? 28. I mean, that's that means, like, they're... They're they're just romping them, which you know who knows. Um, we'll talk later. Um, yeah, we'll talk later. Um, I don't know. I think there is. I think I again. What a surprise! I fall down the middle. <laughs> there was some. There was certainly something to be desired after game three. But even when we were talking about this, maybe before the series or after game one, where you know Giannis wasn't like during the season series against the Pistons, it wasn't like Giannis was having great games against them either. You know what I mean? He was, they, for all their limitations, and we saw it certainly on their, throughout the series, even more so than the season series, they still have 
they're certainly more physical than than the Celtics are in terms of who they can roll out there uh, to give Giannis problems. Um, and we obviously saw that in Game Three. We saw that the start at least in the first quarter of Game Four. But like everything with Giannis, once at a certain point, like the difference between Giannis this year and a little bit, yeah, I don't actually know. I would say this year compared to like last year and the his breakout All Star year is that yeah he'll have a he'll have a blip and then he'll instantly come back. Like there there would be kind of a little bit of try that would kind of bleed into other games or like the start to games, which we saw last night. And then like the floodgates would open back up again. And a lot of that was obviously helpful to, you know, the Pistons hitting him in, on his arm, every freaking drive to the basket and five, getting like five fouls and playing 13 minutes or 14 minutes or something like that. So do you think though about that? Because even Dwayne Casey was talking about that and as the discrepancy between, the fouls Giannis was getting and the fouls that Blake Griffin was getting. I was kind of like, come on, Blake Griffin could not drive. He, he was talking about Blake attempted two free throws, Giannis attempted 20. I was like, what is the point here? One of those guys did what it takes to get 20 free throws. The other one couldn't physically do that. But did you feel like he was being bailed out by either the Pistons or the refs? Because no, I think there was, there was one call, um, the one that the tech got called on Casey after, I think, which was probably dubious. But otherwise, he was fouled every time. And the Pistons really just, they had nothing else they could do. It was actually hilarious because they were cycling through any remotely big player they had except for Zaza. And it was just like four fouls, five fouls. It was like everyone had four and five fouls. But what could they do? And that's... We're going to see that again. I mean, one of the, the interesting things, we talk so much about Horford and Horford defending Giannis and how good he is in that department. He might be the best player in the league at doing that and showing any resistance, giving him anything to worry about. What if Giannis comes out and gets two fouls on Horford in the first minute? And you think of how important Horford is for everything the Celtics do. Like, aside from that. Like... It just becomes a major problem. He gets guys in foul trouble at this incredible rate because it's kind of like, yeah, we're just we're trying to do something here, and we end up fouling. We're just trying, you know. It's in this series we can't just let him do this. We're fighting for it. We've got to try and stop him. And in doing that, a lot of the time you're going to end up fouling him because the things he does is just they're just completely insane. Like there were multiple instances where. He broke out plays and finishes that no one has ever done before. <laughs> like, that was just in game four alone. So for me, I, I think part of that, it definitely helps the Pistons were doing that, but I, I don't even view it as the Pistons helping. It's kind of like when he just asserts himself in that way and is like, I'm attacking every single time. At this point, part of that is he's just going to get fouled over and over and there's nothing any team can do about it. Yeah, I mean, we've seen Thon in particular. <laughs> He's pretty – he follows everything. Uh, I mean, it's it goes down the line that there's nothing to really stop Giannis and you kind of hope for those calls to be – or to not get made. I, I don't know. Like, that's just, that's just where we are with Giannis. In the Celtics series, right, 
Because I think it's easy to say something like Horford is kind of too smart for that and might have enough respect from referees to get away with some things. But someone is going to end up with lots of fouls. Like, Giannis isn't going to go through the series without drawing fouls. So who who is going to take those fouls? That comes back again to depth. Semi-Ozole. Well, do they play him for kind of that reason? Do they play him to say, we need someone to try and slow down Giannis, but also to take the fouls without getting key players out of the game? Because if it's Horford, if it's Tatum, you know, whatever way you want to be on that, even even someone like Marcus Morris, if Marcus Morris takes those fouls and is just rooted to the bench, their second unit takes such a colossal hit. It's kind of like, who who is going to take those fouls? Like, when once Blake started playing, the Pistons actually could afford to say, okay, Tom, get in the game and, you know, just use up your five fouls. Like, we have no doubt you will. I don't quite know who for the Celtics is going to do that. Um, you mentioned Giannis, obviously, hadn't had the greatest regular season against the Pistons in spite of the Bucks' four wins. No such issues against the Celtics. No. At all. <laughs> Averages in three games against the Celtics um, in 35.4 minutes per game, 31 points on 59.3% from the field, also 33.3% from deep, 10.7 rebounds, 4.3 assists, 1.7 blocks, 1.3 steals. I mean, they're in this weird spot where they may be better suited to slowing him down than anyone else. And yet slowing him down just doesn't really do a whole lot it's not doing enough for them and if it becomes down to who can do more otherwise i think that's going to be a kind of interesting uh an interesting discussion like there's also the celtics aren't necessarily the most reliable group of players in the world that's fair to say jordan right outside of horford the the variance level for what any other given Celtic could give on a game-to-game basis. Yeah, well, even, even pretty with Kyrie. Colossal. I'm, right, I'm Kyrie. including him in that. I mean, I don't if, know about that one. You don't think there's high variance in Kyrie in this series? Mm, he could average know. 45 points a game. He could average 14 points a game. Mm. I see yeah. both being entirely plausible. And I, I can see both kind of happening... I can see the potential for both to happen even with the series swinging one way or another. I think there's a route to either of those things coming into play. Um, final thoughts on the Pistons. and We probably will never speak about this series again. No. Um, <laughs> like Even less so than the Celtics series last year, the Raptors before that, the Bulls. You know, those kind of noble losses the Bucks took in recent years. Ironically, their first playoff series win in 18 years is the one that isn't going to get a whole lot of conversation. So, final thoughts on it, Jordan. They came, they saw, they conquered. Okay. On that (laughs) note, let's move on to the mailbag, which it might shock you to hear this. We've got some some questions about the Celtics. (laughs) No, that's we're a few days away from Raptors and Sixers talk. Um, so just one game, and then we already know. 
entirely entirely possible that our mailbag after one game could be focused on Raptors or Sixers based on how it worked against the Pistons. Mm-hmm. But to begin with, from our MKE Robert, how many games does it take for the Bucks to finish off the Celtics? Robert getting straight to the point here. No time to kind of you know beat around the bush here. No room to dodge Jordan. How many games does it take for the Bucks to finish off the Celtics? Six. Five. I'm giving them a game. How nice of you. <laughs> I, let, let me try and do this in a way that makes it very clear. This is not a joke. This is not some sort of bit. This is not fueled by some irrational dislike for the Celtics or some sort of, you know, arrogance. This is not... This is not a Raptors or Sixers. I don't have a vendetta against them in that way. Although, that's not going to factor into my predictions for those series if and when they come to pass. Um, I just think the Celtics are going to struggle to score. <laughs> and the Bucs are not going to struggle to score. And if you put those two things together, the Bucs are going to win most of these games pretty comfortably. I think they'll win their two games in Milwaukee. Um, once they go up to, to nothing, it's all kind of in play from there. I mean, that is the other part of this, and I think it's something that was kind of good about Game 4, being competitive for a large part of it. And credit to Pistons fans, because I, I talked about this on the last episode we did. I was like, is anyone going to show up? Is anyone going to care? That arena seemed crazy. It was really, really loud. And just none of that stuff matters to the books. It just doesn't matter. They can win games in Boston. Right now, I'm just... I know, but I'm not convinced that this Celtics team in the playoffs is going to win a game in Milwaukee. With the books as ultra-focused as they will be. And last year's series went entirely with home court, right? It was... Did it? Am I remembering that wrong? I think this year the Bucks will hold home court as well, but I I couldn't imagine them not getting a game in Boston. Which, at that as the kind of basis for this, I think the task the, the Celtics are going to have to win this series is going to be pretty astronomical because I think they're going to have to win... They're going to have to win two games in Milwaukee if they want to win this series. I don't think they can split. I don't think they can split in Pfizer form. Um, so it'll be five games for me, and I, I honestly, I think it will be really convincing. This Bucks team does not mess around. They, they just, they're on a completely different level, and they're not on a. Oh, we figured it out late in the season. The Bucks are in a spot where it's like we've been this all season, and the current evidence is actually suggesting we're getting even better. Brooke Lopez has not looked better at any point this season as an anchor of the Bucks' defense, and he has looked really, really good throughout the year. And I, I, right now, it just looks like, yeah, this is completely figured out. Um, five games for me, Bucks and five. From at MK Robert again, how are we feeling about Eric Bledsoe heading into the Celtics series? I know this has been a point of concern of the pod this season. Is of the pod fair here? It's been a major point of concern for me, but I don't know if you've always shared that. I think you've generally been a Bledsoe optimist. You certainly were ahead of last year's playoffs, 
more so than than I was. And I think you got back to that earlier than I did this year, might be fair to say. Oh, yeah. Scarlet Letter bled. I bleed. I bled for this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm fine. Perfectly fine. Fine, just fine. I'm actually approaching bullish on this. I think there we go. (laughs) (laughs) I think he could be the star of the series. I honestly think when this series is done, we could be talking about. Just there is just we saw it the second half. I mean, if you want to, if you want to look at the difference between the Bucks first half and second half, uh, Eric Bledsoe. That's just as simple as it gets for me. He was just much more engaged, attacking the basket. He's just I uh, his finishes. I, I love his game he so just, much. He doesn't miss at the rim anymore. He finishes with the most ridiculous variety of shots. It's so easy. He just gets ahead of everyone. Is he's quicker than basically everyone he comes up against. He's stronger than basically everyone he comes up against at his position. And I think his basketball IQ has come on leaps and bounds since he's come to Milwaukee, and obviously specifically this season under under Bud. And he also, I don't think, should be kind of underestimated considering his personality and everything we know about him. He is so, so happy and confident right now. He is beaming. Every interview, he's just like, he's so laid back and cool with it. But he's just, you can see he feels that this is the right place, this is the right time. I mean, we have actual evidence of this because he decided not to go to free agency and to sign his extension early because he feels this is it. You know, this is this is where I want to be and this is what brings the best out of me. But, like... I don't even think he'll see Terry Rozier much in this series because if the Celtics have Terry Rozier on the floor of Bledsoe, I think they're going to get cooked in those minutes. And I think he'll give Kyrie nightmares. I think he does things, and he has been recently, that are going to put Kyrie on the back foot defensively, and that just isn't good for the Celtics. I'm not saying that Kyrie isn't going to have his share on the other end. He's obviously a ridiculously talented offensive player. But I think that overall matchup will probably end up a lot closer than most anticipate going in. And if it is remotely close, the series won't be all that close because the Bucks will be way out in front. Jordan, anything else on that? You're... <laughs> Has he set me up for disappointment again? Is this what? No, we, no, 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 no. This no, no. Is That's how I'm laughing. Year. That's how I'm laughing. By the time the playoffs came around last year, I I reached the point where I was like, Bledsoe, Bledsoe's great. And then he was great. Ah, I, I know, I know. And then he wasn't. It's my dying day. <laughs> but let's let's say, for example, because uh, look, the Remember thing his we... shoes in game one, how awful that was. That set the tone. Let's say, for example, he ends up going up against Terry Rozier for quite a lot of time in game one, and Terry Rozier goes off for 40 points, and he has two points to the Celtics win. Do we believe this year's Bledsoe has a different reaction to that than last year's Bledsoe? I don't know. Oh, that's not good. 
I wanted you to well, say, I, of course. I mean, we, I know we can't handles. we can't actually know that, but like any concern over Bledsoe, what it boils down to is if he's put in a tough spot, if the if the chips are down and his back is against the wall, just to combine all of these metaphors, how does he respond? Does he just kind of implode within? Does he just throw it all away and get involved in stupid stuff, or does he is he now capable of having that kind of ability to put it all in context and say, "I know who I am, I know who this team is, and I keep playing, and it's going to be fine." Because if he hadn't done that last year, the Bucks would have beat the Celtics. And if he does that this year, I think they'll beat the Celtics. I'll start worrying when like Ursan pulls a Jabari and just said, "Like I'm not playing enough." Prunty doesn't like me. <laughs> that's our, that's I wonder our, do we actually, like, I don't want to spend too much time on this because thankfully it's not something we have to spend time on anymore. <clears throat> but I really, I wonder what the impact of that was. Of what? Of Jabari saying that the week when he did and just in the locker room and just the players having to listen to just self-absorbed, self-obsessed nonsense when it was their biggest week of the season. I, I really, I wonder just what effect that had in preparations and if behind the scenes with the coaching staff, with everything, if that if that just had any bearing in how things went early on. I mean, the books played well enough throughout most of the series that we just didn't really talk about it in terms of having an impact at that time. We just talked about it in the context of, look, this is the end of the road for Jabari. This is ridiculous. It's Jabari being Jabari. But I do wonder. It's just, it's the kind of dysfunction that is so far removed from anything we can even imagine for this year's books. And they went and they played the Celtics. And they played the, the Celtics. The closest thing was it was the Thon trade. I mean, they got rid it, of it's it. not even remotely close. They just it's kind of dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We don't care about that guy. See you later. Um, <laughs> You can get a jersey and a picture on your way out of the play. <laughs> I went to Detroit and all I got was this jersey. That's yep. the Tom Maker story. Um, yeah, the side note, but I like this desire of Celtics fans, which I understand. And we'd probably do the same if we were in the opposite situation or say, oh, why is that thing going to beat us? Last year, we didn't have Kyrie. We didn't have Gordon Hayward. And they still couldn't beat us. Have they watched the season? I mean, good lord. They probably haven't. <laughs> well, I'm not talking about the Bucks. I'm just talking about their own season. Like, yeah, that hasn't uh, proven to be a great formula. Don't underestimate the spin that if you watch, if your Celtics experience is filtered like true uh, Tommy Heinsohn's view of the world. Oh, that call! <laughs> Like what? What will you end up thinking about the NBA? You think you always think the Celtics are the best team in the NBA? Always. It's just it's a matter of time, unless you know, big NBA conspires against you. But yeah, there there is also look. That's an element that I think will, even though smart people have written about it and discussed it at length, and they still do. I think in every matchup the books have in these playoffs. Whether that's this one last matchup and they get eliminated, the Celtics, or if they go further, 
the team the Bucks will be will be so completely different to the team that they could have been last year because of the difference in coaching. Uh, I think people now, maybe who didn't grasp that initially or just never paid enough attention to the Bucks to fully understand that, they kind of will parrot that as a line. I'm not entirely sure, though, that the wider NBA world still understands just how bad it was. Like, whether there's this feeling of, yeah, they made a coaching improvement, but they were probably due a year-on-year improvement, and this maybe added just a little bit more. Where Bucks fans are, Bucks fans don't need to be told. We didn't, don't need to hash it out. Like, this is night and day. This is, this is as dramatically different you can get from one coaching regime to another. It, you cannot, there is not a more significant change that could be made. I don't think there's a team in the NBA right now where you could just be like, fire that coach, put this coach in, boom, 60 wins. Like, it was mismanagement at a coaching level of the highest order. I don't think that fully, people know it, it's there, it circulates, but I don't think it's hit home yet. And it will hit home with the Celtics when they're down like 40 points in game three in their own floor. And Tommy Heinsohn's like standing on top of the table screaming. That's when it will finally make its way through. From Wesley Bill. Will Brogdon give the books a boost in the second round like Marcus Smart did for Boston last year? His play really did shift the series. Look, I'm expecting Brogdon not to come back looking like Brogdon. What do you look like? Oh, God. (laughs) I set that one up. Uh, But if he does, like, again, what are are the Celtics going to do? What are the Sixers or Raptors going to do beyond that? There There are only two teams in the NBA who can credibly claim to have any options or any kind of any kind of threats of their own to counter that, and they're not in the Eastern Conference. And one of them will be eliminated after the next round. Um, I, if Brogdon comes back looking anything like Brogdon, his impact will be far greater than what Marcus Smart's was a year ago. And Marcus Smart's impact was huge, but just the way those two players play, Brogdon would be so much more central to what the Bucks could do if he does come back playing like we kind of know him to. And it, it's just that on top of Miritich, as as we mentioned earlier, like Miritich is looking like, oh yeah, he's got this again. Um, from even things like he was fighting inside in a different way that he wasn't a couple of games ago. He got a nice uh, tip in off an offensive rebound that you're kind of like, hmm. yeah, he feels good. He looks healthy. And yeah. when everyone in the wider NBA world kind of freaked out at the deadline because the books, as good as they were, had just added Nikola Miritich, some of the air obviously got let out of that balloon when he was injured and missed as much of the time he as he has since arriving in Milwaukee. But he might just spend the second round reminding everyone of exactly why they thought what they thought at the time. And that's also, I mean, let's remember which team didn't strengthen at that point. <laughs> the Celtics. Mm. They They were the one who kind of stood pat and were like, yeah, which we're fine. Look, look at the standings. Go watch us play. What is possibly wrong here? But yeah, I think his impact would be greater than Smart. Um, I think the one thing Smart had, maybe that's also we probably should mention that 
like in any way smart as the guy that they'd put on Giannis. Mm. I think they'd put him on the Anna some. They did last year. I, I he definitely got a lot of time on Middleton. But if he was healthy, I think that could be something we'd see. Him on Yanis. Yeah. But we're not. And if he I mean he could technically return right at the end of the series again if it went six or seven games. Or he manages to pull it out, try to Depending on how the series goes, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back like earlier than he does a Blake Griffin. Maybe. From at Jacob Cage, tree, tree, tree. Will we see more Snell against Boston or is he pretty much out of the rotation at this point? Uh, this is an interesting question and I really, I have a feeling, but I don't actually know for sure. He played one minute at the end of game three. He played four minutes at the end of game four. The fact that game four ended up being much more competitive than probably most would have assumed kind of. It took away the chance to really learn what what Snell's status is right now and to find an answer to this question. Because I don't know if there was really room to play him that much more than that in game four. And then at the same time, I don't know if they do want to play him more than that. I think my feeling would be he probably is out of the rotation based on how other guys have played and based on the season he's had too. He hasn't had his greatest season. Mm. Not his greatest season. I mean, no, I, don't think, it wasn't... I don't think he kicked on in the way that we all would have hoped under Bud and with the changes to the scheme and everything. Like, I, I think he was widely pegged as someone who could be a big beneficiary and really he may have benefited less than any other wing. But his minutes went down big time. And he still almost shot 40% from three. Yeah, but I I just don't think the attempts is the... He He didn't show himself to be the guy who can take more shots. Look, there are things he improved. I, there's a lot of, that he did this year that I'm quite a big fan of, uh, particularly his driving. Like He became someone who, much like um, Sterling as well, I guess maybe this is one of the big things that the development work has done for the Bucks Wings this year is guys who you would just think of as spot-up shooters have all of a sudden become these really, really good and reliable drivers who know how to, how to go at the rim and when to pick their spots. But I think he's gonna be out of the rotation. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be surprised. Something would have to really go wrong for him to. And two, I think, like you said, we don't really know. I mean, he he was available to come back and play, but how does his ankle react to playing much larger minutes? That's still not to be determined at this point. Or that still hasn't been determined. <laughs> That's uh, I, I just don't know what he does that would cause you to to put him out there to play more minutes at this point. Sure. Because he's not as good a defender as Sterling. Because he certainly doesn't rebound like Sterling. No. Um, Sterling doesn't... I mean, at this point, 
He can't. He can't influence the game like shooting. Yeah. He can't influence the game like Pat either. No. He's not going to fill up a box score and do a little bit of everything to just. And then Brogdon is going to come back. So. It's it's very difficult to see where his minutes are going to come from. Mm-hmm. Um, from an OG Jeezy, do you see Al Horford being as effective guarding Giannis the majority of the time this year? I don't. I think something very simple that will just get overlooked in the build-up to this, but by the end of the series could be really apparent is the fact that both guys are one year older and what that means in their respective scenarios. Because for Giannis, he's effectively moved into his prime and he's taken the jump from being one of the 10 best players in the NBA to possibly being one of the three best players in the NBA and the likely MVP. Like even any mention of oh the team the books played last year in losing to the Celtics and the team they are this year, like you can't compare those two things as the same because Giannis is better. <laughs> um, Horford is a year older, and he's shown some worrying signs. He did earlier in the season. He certainly got it together when it mattered, but he's at an age where it's not like. It's not impossible that just all of a sudden people could be like, oh, wow, he just doesn't look the same in a matchup like that. I mean, most players aren't going to do great in that, so it's not kind of this really damning indictment of Al Horford, but it is something that could come into play in this series. The other thing worth mentioning here is, (laughs) do you know where I'm going with this? Sorry, I'm just looking. I know you said, like, I don't know if he's going to be able to slow it down. So I was kind of like looking at what Giannis did during the series last year. You know, he just averaged 25.7 points, 9.6 rebounds, 6.3 assists, on 57% shooting for the field, and 28.6 shooting for three. So, yeah. But he is going to be better than that this year. (laughs) Like, he is. I know, but it's funny. I think this, what, what that, could, was very, that was with all these elements going against him. Spacing's awful. Coaching situation awful. Team is incredibly thin, so he has to play way more minutes just to give his team a fighting chance. And played forty minutes per game, by the way, in that series. Yeah, he's not gonna have to play anywhere near that. Trust me on that one. Um, the the other thing that shouldn't be forgotten in this is there isn't a coach in the NBA who knows Al Horford better than Bud. Yep. And when that is the Celtics' most important player in this series, that is kind of a big deal. And Bud has been on the inside when Al Horford's strengths have been negated and have actually been turned into the team's glaring weaknesses in a playoff series. And to me, coming, wearing the scars of battle from those series. I think the Bucks have a real opportunity on the glass in this series. And the Celtics aren't a bad rebounding team. 
No. But particularly if they opt to play smaller and they take Baines out, I think the Bucks and Bud could do to Al Horford Celtics what Bud was on the wrong end of when Horford was on his Hawks teams all along. And I think with Giannis, with Brook Lopez, and something I kind of alluded to earlier, I think Sterling could be really big in this series. Sterling Brown, if Sterling ends up playing more and Brogdon isn't back right away, or they just decide to st- continue to lean on Sterling in a meaningful way, um, Sterling just comes up with the most improbable rebounds because he positions himself well, he's stronger, he, I think, generally wants it more than most guys. The Bucks could dominate the series on the glass, and if they do that again, the Celtics just can't win that. I mean, there are all these areas I think the Celtics, if they want to move on, they're going to have to come out on top. And I think if they lose on the glass, they're going to be in pretty bad shape. Because they, they don't get any offensive rebounds as is. Like, I mean, they, they score less points, certainly having the playoffs so far on the offensive glass than the Bucks do. And considering the Bucks are the best defensive rebounding team in the NBA, um, if the Celtics don't make all their shots, which we've seen this this season, the one time they beat the Bucks, they had to literally make all of their shots. Um, if they don't do that, they're not getting second chances out of this Bucks team. And I don't know if the same can be said down the other end. The Bucks aren't going to solely go out looking to hunt down second chance points. It's not what they do. It's not what Budenholzer has ever done. They're opportunistic on the glass than anything. They're opportunistic on the glass, and I think when... I think they can make it a focus that when the ball starts swinging, or particularly say if a play is drawn up for a shooter, let's try and get bodies in onto the glass in those scenarios. They can pick their moments where they they look to employ that, and I think there will be a real opportunity for them to go and do that. I'm just seeing here uh, Tom Thibodeau on NBA TV. He's made his predictions for second round. Just trying to guess what Tibbs has picked. I saw it. You saw it? Okay. Of course, that is a former Boston Celtics assistant coach, Tom Thibodeau. Um, he has picked Celtics in seven. I'm not saying it. Anyway, from Adam G. Olsen. Hasn't been a good year for Tom Thibodeau. Hasn't been a good year. <laughs> yeah, that's very, very true. Tell us more about the other things you think work in today's NBA, Tom Thibodeau. Um, if I said the Bucks will sweep, what would you put the odds at? Like four to one? I think the odds for a sweep will be longer than four to one. Now, I'm not saying there won't be value in taking up those odds. My God, (laughs) I I don't think they'll sweep, but. I'm not saying they won't sweep. You get me, Jordan? Yeah, I get you. <laughs> like, it, it's, it is possible for this team to sweep the Celtics. Not the most likely, but if you feel strong in it, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dissuade anyone from investing uh, very moderate funds. A few cents here or there, Jordan. Um, at Mulaney Joey, we've seen teams have success with holding slash fouling Giannis and crossing their fingers. They don't get called every time. Are we concerned refs might allow the series to descend into a rock fight quickly? 
with the game four foul disparity fresh in their minds. Should home court help? I think the Bucks got a really favorable whistle in round one. I'm not saying. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, I don't think. Well, I'm not saying it's entirely undeserved, but they never got called against. And I think that's something that will happen when you have the best record in the regular season and you've got the MVP front runner. There will just at some point be an understanding of, yeah, this team's really good. Uh, that shot didn't go down. There must be a foul there. And often there is, but they can be the kind of fouls that you miss out on if you're not getting that benefit of the doubt. Um, it will be interesting, certainly when the series goes to Boston, to see how that goes. The Celtics aren't a paint-scoring team, though. We've already mentioned this, and the Bucs are going to be... the. There's going to be a major free-throw disparity in this series, even if Bucs fans feel they should get more, because the Bucs are going to attack and attack and drive, and the Celtics are not going to do the same. I'm feeling pretty good right now that the books are going to get largely called as they should. I don't think there's a whole lot to say that they don't either. Um, are there bad officials? Are there missed calls? Sure. But I think generally we're reaching a point where more often than not, they're getting called pretty fairly for how they play and I guess who they are. From an MK, Robert again. Two-part question. Part one, who do you think will start for the Celtics in game one? Part two, rank the 10 starters, assuming Sterling continues to start. Who do you think will start for the Celtics in game one, Jordan? I think we see a curveball. I think they go Morris. I, I, don't, the bench. I don't even understand that curveball. Well, I don't, there's a lot of things I don't understand with the Boston Celtics. But <laughs> what do you think that? Well what do you think that they might think that would achieve? It, they, does that know. just make him the guy to take fouls from Giannis? Maybe I don't know. Is it better than having starting semi Aldridge? Because I did, I just don't think that I would be shocked if they do bands because I just don't see the purpose. Of that, besides just having, I, yeah, I just don't see the purpose of that, and especially in against the Bucks. I do see the purpose of it because I think if you want Horford to guard Giannis, which I think they need to do if they want any chance here, I think you need another big to guard Brook Lopez. I really do. I think if you go small. The books will post them up over and over again. Bud will unashamedly exploit that play after play after play, as he should, yeah. if that becomes the scenario. So I don't think Aaron Baines is particularly ideal to have kind of having to chase out towards the arc. <laughs> no. But if you go smaller, you may give up even more by what Lopez does inside. Brooke Lopez is not. We know this. Is, I mean, this, this is, is where the smart that... injury. This is where the smart injury hurts them the most because he would be the most logical 
guy to insert in the starting lineup. Even with he had a better shooting year this year, but still. I mean, he started most of the season, right? Didn't he? Yeah, I think something like that. Like, Jalen Brown only really came back in once he got injured. Uh, uh, For me, that's the way they go. So, for the second part of the question, to rank the 10 starters, I would have their same starting lineup, I think, will start game one for me. And if I was to rank the starters between the two teams, I'd go Giannis, Horford, Kyrie, Bledsoe, Middleton, Brooke, Tatum, Jalen Brown, Sterling, Baines. That'd be how I'd rank my 10 um, that I'd expect to start game one. I mean, yours probably doesn't change all that much with Marcus Morris coming in for Baines, although maybe he wouldn't be the worst player of the 10. Would you put him ahead of Sterling? I don't know. I don't I think. I think he's probably... <laughs> I, uh, I mean, you were never going to get involved in that part of the exercise anyway. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, that's not Jordan's style. From Adam G. Olsen... If the Celtics start Horford at the five and match him on Giannis, what does that mean for Lopez? I mean, I think we've touched on that. I think it means post-ups. It means post-ups or a game. taking Baines away from the rim or someone of that ilk. Um, it's, a, it's a real pick your poison because if you want to put a bigger guy on Lopez, Lopez is going to live behind the three-point line, and the books are going to have maximum spacing for Yanis to attack inside. So then even if Horford does a good job on him, um, Yanis is going to have him one-on-one most of the time, and foul trouble is going to be inevitable. If you try to take the tree away from Lopez, you're going to reduce the book spacing, and you're obviously going to like that might be your best chance for limiting Yanis is to actually take away Brooks' three-point shooting and just make it more congested. But I do think in doing that, it, this is where it's easy for everyone to forget just how good Brook Lopez is and what he has been in the NBA for a long time because this isn't just your average center who averages like 10 points and five rebounds. Like He is not an Aaron Baines type. He is not like this kind of just, oh, here's our fifth guy. If you want to say to him, oh, you know, you have to beat us if we're going to lose, he could he could beat them. It, it could be. It, I have had a feeling for quite a while that at some point there was going to be a moment where Brooke was going to have to do even more. And he would could very well be up to that task where people are just like, yeah, this is ridiculous. The books are unfair. They got Brooke Lopez for this deal and look what he can do. This might be the matchup for that. This is the matchup for that. I mean, because if they play the Celtic or if they play the Sixers or the Raptors, they're going to come up with legitimate size anyway. Um, This matchup, I think Lopez causes a problem. And look, a lot of the focus on the days ahead is going to be, oh, can the Celtics play Brook Lopez off the floor? What? How is he going to defend when he gets into switches? And we've talked about this before. 
And the answer to that is he basically defends better than any other big man in the NBA. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> if that's the game the Celtics want to play, I think Brooke could kill them offensively Bring on it. switches and hold his own defensively. Yes, Jordan, I agree with Brea. <laughs> From Ad or Caddy Jr., if the over-under is set a four for the number of times Giannis will dunk on Aaron Baines this series, are you taking the over or the under? I'll take the under. One per game? See, you have it as a sweep now. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, did you say under? Yeah, I'll take the under, because I have it pretty close to a sweep, so... <laughs> I'll take the under. I think three and five games is a good goal. From a Cowboys space, how disappointed are you that we won't see the Sterling Brown Marcus Smart matchup we've all been waiting for? I'm not that disappointed. <laughs> Me neither. Um, it plays to the book's advantage not having Marcus Smart. I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying if Marcus Smart was playing, I'd be like, oh, I think the Celtics have got this in five. Um, but he is a very useful player who can do a variety of things. Also, Celtics aren't short on fake tough guys. Um, Sterling Brown will find other friends to acquaint himself with. I can see, <laughs> I can see Sterling Brown, Marcus Morris being something that happens at some point in the series. Most of all, I think Sterling Brown could, you know, he could make a mockery of Terry Rozier in the way that Bledsoe made a mockery of Terry, or Rozier made a mockery of Bledsoe last year. I think that's one where Rozier is, uh, he likes to talk and thinks he's somebody, and I think on the court, Sterling Brown could lock him down and actually hurt him with his offense, and then if that spills over in any way, there's only one winner. But yeah, I think Sterling Brown will have a chance to make some new buddies. From uh, David Dunn 21, is Reggie Miller's true legacy that he was so hated that once he retires, fans modified Reggie sucks to ref you suck? Was he really the first person to have that particular chant in that way? I feel like that can't possibly be true. If it is, it's pretty impressive, but... Did Refuse Suck not exist before Reggie Miller retired? I don't know. I'm at, I'm kind of asking you, Jordan, but I don't think you have the answer for me. I would assume it was already a thing. I feel like it must have predated that, but if David Dunn 21 wants to come back with a response on that, I'm very much open to hearing about it. Front Joe was on one. Books in four. Books get to the finals in eight. Convince me otherwise. This one might be up to you, Jordan. The sweeps all around. We're going 12. Fo, fo, fo. Moses Malone. Legendary um, book. Yeah. That's what, yeah. Everybody remembers him. His Bucks days. No. I... You have I to like convince, you have to convince Joe, though. What's the? How are you convincing him? It's not going to be too well, sweet. He could believe if he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I want to swear. 
this is why I want the Sixers in the final, in the conference finals, because I just think there's this beautiful synchronicity to not just 18 years, which are now being taken care of, but decades of books hurt, of books also runs, of books nearly worse. That if they're to get to the finals, true beating the Celtics and the Sixers. Come on, what's not to like? That's pretty good. The Raptors, who are they? No, they're the team who always loses in the playoffs. Celtics and Sixers. Historically, there's some nice kind of resonance to that. Um, I don't I don't think they sweep both series. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say I don't think they just keep winning without any sort of blip at all, but I'm not I'm not gonna set myself up to be made a fool. <laughs> I'm not. I could very easily make bold predictions here, but I'll just start with one series at a time. Um, and this is going to be five games. So, you know, we're going to be one game out in this one. From at more cowbell 520, do you see the Bucks using a lot of their jumbo lineups in the Celtic series? Could Miritich be the series X factor? I do see them using a lot of them. I think we touched on this before. Um, it's something Bud loves, and it's still currently it's beautiful. It's up his sleeve. <laughs> that was his direct quote: "Was it was effing beautiful?" Yeah. It's something that's kind of up his sleeve, and interestingly, as you even noted in your takeaways piece, it did kind of get a mini airing against the Pistons. We had some uh, Miritich, Urson, and Brook lineups at least. So I think there's also Giannis too, but it was like. These are all like maybe a minute, minute and a half. So it wasn't like prolonged. I mean, the kind of straight comparisons in this series are for like who's the equivalent of Miritich for the Celtics? It's Marcus Morris. I mean, particularly if Brogdon comes back, I, I guess you could make a Gordon Hayward claim as a sixth man source, but even that gets kind of. I don't know. I know. He scored 20 in game four. They're on the beginning and the right path. The other thing, even when we think of Rozier and his obvious impact last year as opposed to this year, um, even if somehow he did manage to do the same to Bledsoe this year, um, the books also have George Hill this year, who, as we talked about at the top of the episode, um, has like a 84.7 defensive rating for the playoffs so far and has... And only played. I think he only played one. No, I take that back. Never mind. You were going to say one of the games against the Celtics this season. I was going to say he only played in one game and he left midway through that one, but that's not true. He played in both wins. Oh, well, that in itself tells a story, Jordan. Interesting, isn't it? It sure is. From at John Dolza, who gets more minutes in this series, Miritich or. Or Urson. I don't think it's an either or. I think it's the first thing. I am. No, I'm joking. I think it's Miritich. I think they'll be very similar. Urson can kind of guard Horford. Let's say you want it for extended spells of time, 
But Horford is a pretty difficult matchups for most bigs because he's mobile for his size. He's also really strong. Um, that's the kind of matchup that Ersan can kind of hang with. Like he's just quick enough to kind of not get blown by every time. Quick is maybe not the right word to use in this context. Um, but he also he also has enough strength that you can't just bowl through him. Likewise, I mean, I think any big the Celtics have, the Celtics don't have a legitimate big where actually any of the books power forwards is going to have a problem. Except maybe DJ on Horford. I don't want to say that. Maybe it'll be worth trying in a burst, but I don't think that will end well based no. on everything we've everything we've talked about with DJ recently. I think a lot for him in this series. Yeah, I I feel that way too, and I think a lot of people will be like, oh, but you know, the Celtics are a good team to switch against, and DJ's so good at this. To me, if DJ ends up, they have the they have way soccer. they have way better switching lineups than just having uh, DJ in there. I also think, and again, it's something we discussed before, but from a book's perspective, their first instinct has to be what they're going to do to the Celtics rather than guarding against what the Celtics will do to them because if the season has told us anything, it's that the books are the better team. So the numbers tell us, that's what the entire regular season has told us this year. So obviously there's things you've got to guard against and things you've got to be prepared for going into game one. To me, it would be a big mistake if the Bucks go into the series in the back foot, though, worrying about what this Celtic will do or that Celtic will do. Because, I mean, the Pistons, obviously, a far, far inferior team to the Celtics. But let's just take them as the example as what we have in front of us, because Dwayne Casey kind of said it. Look, they went through whatever they could do, whatever they could change, and the Bucks are a team that are just going to have a counter for any adjustment that basically any team makes against them. They have enough options that they can they can come up with a counter. Maybe they won't win with every counter, but they can at least say, okay, you're doing that. Here's what we'll do to go against it. Um, that's how well-rounded the roster is. But back to the original question, I I would be inclined to say Miritich too, particularly with the way he started to shoot, although I don't know if he'll be getting heavy minutes from game one. Because no, they are still easing he... him back in. I think those two will end up very similar in terms of minutes by the time the season's done. Although we could see Ursan play more early and less late and the reverse for Miritich. 60 minutes for Miritich compared to Ursan's 81 in the first round. Just so you know. They could meet somewhere around 70 minutes in this series. Although they're going to play more games, or are they? Um, from uh, Clayson John, lastly, what has been Planet Pat's secret to become a consistent bench contributor the second half of the season and in the playoffs? I think he shot the ball a bit better. He's not a just complete black hole offensively like he went through a spell when he fell out of the rotation where he was unplayable because his shot was a disaster. And I think even beyond that, um, 
So at the end of the season, I'll probably go and take a closer look at how his assists tracked throughout the year. And if they were kind of linear, my instinct would be that they weren't and that he's improved in terms of playmaking and had a greater output in that department as the year went on. And that likely points to, I guess, him just figuring out a way to be productive, guaranteed, so that if his shot isn't falling, okay, well, I can stay on the court because I'm still going to create something. Um, that would be... That would be my on that. Let me see. I have the numbers here and we'll find out. Let's make them per 36, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, um, October, 1.3 assists per 36 minutes. November, um, 3.8 assists for 36, 4.8 in December, 5.7 in January. Um, then he's kind of, he's fallen off a little bit, but he has actually played more. So per 36, maybe wouldn't be falsely inflated in the same way, but he has kind of balanced out in this area where he's probably last three months of the season where he played 30 games in that span, he'd be right around three assists per 36 minutes. Um, I just I just think he's found greater utility as being a secondary guard and what that involves and giving something more. So, yeah, I think that would be the way I'd see it. Like, he's, he's an example of a guy who he's played nine more minutes post-All-Star break than he played in 13 more games pre-All-Star break. So, 6.26 minutes pre-All-Star in 37 games, 635 post All-Star in 24 games. And he did finish out most of the season like right around the 30 minutes per game mark. And even like if we're to uh if we're to look at that first round series Do you want to guess how many books played more minutes per game than Pat Connaughton? I think Middleton. Middleton is one. Brooke. Brooke is another. So Brooke has actually Brooke played the most minutes in the first round. Middleton was second. Is that it? It's one more. One more. One more. One more. Not Giannis. It is Giannis. Oh, Giannis. Giannis twenty eight point three to Connaughton's twenty seven point eight. So, I mean, no single book averaged more than thirty minutes per game. Averaged even thirty minutes per game. Um, against the Pistons. But yeah, Connaughton was 14 minutes per game in the series, and he's clearly someone that Bud trusts for significant minutes. I think they will go down in the second round. I think George Hill's minutes are going to go up. Okay, that is that is it for now. We will likely be back before game one. We don't know when that will be at the moment, so we'll make no promises. But we'll likely be back before game one. And if we are, we'll have some kind of preview. Um, who knows what other news we may have heading into the series. There might be some updates on Brogdon or whatever that could be. So we did they die the river green again. Did they redie it? I don't know. Maybe they do. Yeah, they they might want to do that. Just for a good look, you know? If it's worked well, so it far. It usually becomes Celtics green. That Kel- Kelly Green. 
that is that is kind of true. I didn't think of that. Yeah. But maybe it could just be about, you know, reclaiming the color green. I mean, it would be a pretty bold move to try and at this stage, you know, take the NBA association with green away from the Celtics and in a larger sense away from the city of Boston. But listen, Jordan. This is bigger than basketball. Their claim to that colors. Their claim <laughs> to that comes back to, you know, connections with Ireland. And as an Irishman, I feel qualified to say, you know, green could be Milwaukee's color now. You've heard it here first. We will be back. If not before the series, it will be soon after. Um, I don't think we'll be taking any games off for podcasts in the next series unless it's completely, you know, a snooze fest where the books win by 25 points a game. And who knows, really, Jordan? Not you or I. Until then, and to make sure you do catch us whenever we're back, make sure you subscribe to Snapple Podcasts, follow us on SoundCloud, Addison Stitcher, Favorites, and Tune in Radio, and follow us on Spotify. I think you can also read all of mine Jordan the rest of the team's writing on behindthebookpass.com we'll have all manner of preview posts ahead of that series in the coming days and we will be back with you sometime soon until then enjoy the sweep enjoy the 18 enjoy the 18 year wait coming to a close thanks to all of you for listening thank you Jordan thank you